Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Ecruel Dubai. For anyone who grew up watching horse racing during the 1980s and the 1990s, my next guest was a, a pivotal figure. His artistry in the saddle and his undoubted popularity in the weighing room were only matched by his ability to court controversy and to make some um, serious errors of judgment along the way, errors of judgment that ultimately cost him five years, banned from the BHA, originally eight, reduced to five, on appeal for passing inside information to uh, a known criminal. He is, of course, Graham Bradley. Well, Graham Bradley, it's been an amazing career in many respects, a brilliantly successful career in the saddle, a career that's been blighted by, by controversy. Um, what's the next chapter? Is there a next chapter? Well, thank you very much for the invitation, Nick. It's a wonderful show that you've got. Um, the main, main problem I've got at the moment is my reputation. I need to um, rebuild people's trust and regain my reputation. Um, and hopefully then, you know, I really want to apologise to what I've done over the last few years. I was a very successful jockey. I rode a lot of big winners. I've got a lot of friends in racing. But I created some stupid, stupid mistakes and I want to apologise. I have apologised in the past, um, but I just need to regain the people's trust. And I want to get sort of like an official position back in racing, get back in with all my friends and, and step my career off again. It's been a, it's been a very interesting story. And if, if you read everything that's happened to you, it's not straightforward either. It, it's complex because your emotions seem to have taken a roller coaster. At one moment quite contrite, the next moment quite bombastic, the next moment feeling victimised. Now you've had a period of time to, I suppose, reflect on all of that, an extended period of time. What, what do you feel about your own conduct, I suppose, professionally in that period from sort of 84 to, to 99? Uh, when, when I was 14 years old, I lost my mother to breast cancer and it was, it was really emotional for me. And it made me appreciate how important every day was every day in life. And I just, you know, I could never say goodbye to her again. I could never say goodnight. And it made me, it made me a different, different person. So every day I just wanted to fund. The last line of my autobiography, live for today, tomorrow is promised no one. I just wanted to be a nice, fun, kind sort of a bloke. Um, and every day was, every day was okay. Um, I, I just, I just, you know, like I said before, some of the mistakes I've made has just been just been unbelievable, um, and I just want to apologise for it. But when did that realisation occur that they were mistakes? Because for a lot of time, and and particularly reading the chapter about your friendship with with Brian Wright in the book, uh, Brian Wright, a renowned uh, criminal um, and mastermind of one of the biggest cocaine smuggling rings in in Europe, um, you you staunchly defended your your friendship with him for a, whole, for a whole chapter in the book. Do you now perceive that which ultimately led to you being disqualified for, for five years? Do you now perceive that as a mistake? Absolutely, yes. When I, was, when I was young, um, I mean, I got introduced to Brian Wright. He used to go to the races a lot. A lot of people in racing knew him um, and I came very friendly with him. Um, but giving him the confidential privileged information that I did was just so, so wrong. At the time, I believed in myself a lot. I thought it was a very good judge. When a, a jockey rides a horse, he comes back and he tells the owners, the trainers, it wants a bit further, it wants a bit softer, it wants riding, holding up, or it wants to be going on, and things like that, you see. 
And that's what I was thinking, what confidential privileged information was. Um, I didn't work in the yards too much. All I did was sort of um, school and gallop horses. I didn't look after them. <coughs> um, so at the time, I was a bit naive. I was very stupid. I didn't think I was doing too much wrong. I was just going for nights out with him and meeting him at the, the nightclubs, going racing and meeting him after racing and things like that and telling him, oh, I think this might win. I think this will love the ground, etc., etc. Um, but now, you know, the way it's affected my life and my mental stress has just been unbelievable. I'm just so guilty, so wrong. And like I've said before, I just need to apologise. It was a stupid thing to do. You know, the, the BHA, the integrity of the BHA, what they do now is very, very, very important. We are the second biggest sport in racing, I think, behind football and the number of people that, that like watching racing is incredible. So they've got to keep the integrity and people's reputation, they've got to keep it really good. And like I said before at the time, I didn't think I was doing too much wrong, but I'd know now that it was, it was stupid. And what I want to know is when did that realisation come about? When did you stop becoming the Graham Bradley who wrote this incredibly engaging but very controversial book with Steve Taylor back in 2001, after you'd retired with a forward by the champion jockey? When did you stop becoming the Graham Bradley that wrote this? And when did you start becoming the Graham Bradley that's sitting here now saying, I'm really sorry, actually, a lot of what I said in here, I now don't believe in. Where was that? Well, quite, quite a few years ago. Um, quite a few years ago. You know, I was, I was 40 years old when I retired from riding. Um, and I had to keep an involvement in racing. I bought a horse called Vicious Circle for a friend of mine, mm -hmm. David Metcalf. That won, won the Ebor. That won the Ebor. Um, and I got a really good business going. Um, and that made me, I mean, I had... Uh, Everything was going absolutely wonderful. I was buying some really good horses. And it was round about then, so you're talking um, at least 10 years ago that I realised I'd made some stupid, stupid oh. mistakes. When I sort of like applied to be, I got me, did all my trainers modules and wanted to be a trainer in the end. Um, the BHA knew then that the press and the public didn't trust me. Um, so I had to start working on it. It was very emotional, it was upsetting. Um, but it really did make me appreciate some of the stupid, stupid things that I'd done. But even as recently as 2014, you were saying that you were feeling victimised by the BHA. No, but I totally understand this. I really do. Um, you know, I wanted to rebuild my life, rebuild my career. I wanted to look after the wife and daughter. Um, just want to get really get back into racing. I mean, I go to Royal Ascot every year in the owners and trainers car park before and after racing. Everybody I seem to meet. I get unwell with everybody. I go to Dubai, I go to Cheltenham, Aintree, I meet everybody. But the, generally the racing public who don't know me think that um, they just don't trust me. So I've just been trying to work and work and work. So I'm getting it back. Through the last week I was going through your, your life and career and I remember all the, well, most of the, of the high points in the saddle. The brilliant ride on Morley Street, Collier Bay, you got the ride because you didn't get out of bed on time with, <laughs> yeah. with Alderbrook. Um, the many brilliant rides for the Dickinsons. The Gold Cup win on Bragorn. But also could produce readily a dossier of quotes and citations from people within the sport, people that you've worked for and people who administ administer the sport that would make you the last candidate worthy of any position in horse racing I could possibly imagine. And in your book, in the first chapter of the book is entitled Never Get Caught and through the book runs a thread 
where essentially you're, you're resenting authority. Are you now saying you don't resent the authority of the BHA? I totally, totally appreciate the jockey club, the BHA, what they do for racing. It's absolutely incredible. But I was just a friendly, ongoing sportsman. I didn't think I was doing a lot wrong, but I do appreciate now what I did wrong. It was just stupid. I was young. I was just immature. Um, and I'm, you know, we can't really explain it that, um, you, you know, your life, I've, I ruined my own life. It's just, it's totally, totally my fault. I have written to the BHA, I've sent them emails, I've tried to apologise. Um, but I needed to come and chat to you in a show like this and apologise to the racing public. Because um, I'm 58 years old now, my life has changed. Um, the things I wrote in my book, uh, it took me six months to write it. The chap I wrote it with, Steve Taylor, was absolutely brilliant. He chose all the, the character, the um, chapters, headlines and things like that. Um, but it's, I mean, it was in the Sunday Times bestsellers list for eight weeks or something. It was. Um, but you're not, you're not now, you're not throwing Steve under the bus no, here. No, no, for, no, absolutely no. He, he, he was, no. A, he was a big help. Um, but the the chapter about a chapter about Brian Wright. I mean, I didn't. He's got lots of friends in racing. We didn't know what he was doing, um, but it's, it's, it's caused a lot of problems since. It's compromised a lot of people, you see, but we didn't know at the time. When I wrote that book, I didn't think he was guilty, but he did get found guilty, which is very unfortunate. Um, but I just wanted, you know, I'd retired from racing. I wanted to let people know exactly what I'd done, all the big winners at the road, all the funny stories, etc., etc., etc. So, and it sold very well. It was very popular, um, but I didn't mean to, yeah, I've got a different a different opinion now than what it was when I wrote it in 2018 years ago. I've been retired from riding 18 years ago. Well, you definitely didn't mean to perjure yourself in your own book, which is what you which is what essentially you ended up doing. Uh, just one example. I'm trying to sort of tap into the psychology a little bit. In your book, you recount a story that, on one level, is quite funny, and on a, on another level, is incredibly sinister. And it's the story about when Brian Wright had the last leg of his treble. On Forgive and Forget to win the 1987 Gold Cup, a race in which you were riding Old Wayward Lad, the, the title of your book. Yep. And you were making an attempt with some other jockeys to get the race delayed because they or, or stopped, abandoned, because it was snowing and everyone remembers the thinker won it and you were shouting at the start of the, the snow's balling up in the horse's feet. And you know, on one level, it's a it's a funny story. As I said, on another level, it's an incredibly sinister story. You are trying through connections with a known criminal to um, Influence the outcome of the of the most the most famous weight rage steeplechase in in the world, one of the most prestigious prizes in the world. There's a bit of you in the book that 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 has the bravado to to sort of think that it's it's a good story and people will warm to it and laugh at it, and I'm sure plenty of people did. But there's a bit of you that must surely now think, what on earth was I thinking? Absolutely stupid, stupid, stupid. We wanted the book to be entertaining. I didn't want the horse race to be run because of all the snow and the ground had come up soft and Wayward Lad wouldn't get the, the trip on soft ground. But to say what I did in the book, I mean we did, I did have a, just a fun thing um, about Brian Wright. It, it wasn't totally 100% true. I didn't want the race to be run because the ground was too soft, that was the main thing. But writing the book was entertainment and trying to produce, so it was a stupid, stupid, stupid thing to do. So. I think what you're saying to me is that you're, you're just eager to entertain people, make people laugh. You want to please people all the time, even if it means that you are 
telling lies, telling falsehoods. You, you're, more, you're more interested in, in pleasing people than you are maintaining the integrity that was expected of you as a rider. Well, my life was fun. I think I was a, a very, very good jockey. I rode for a lot of top trainers, rode a lot of big winners. Um, and I just wanted to win, win, win. I didn't want to do anything stupidly wrong. But like I said to you before, I just I did make some, some daft mistakes. Graham, are you definitely not going to apply for your trainer's licence again? Um, 58 years old, I did apply for it a few years ago. I don't know whether it's, you know, you need a lot of big owners. A few years ago, I did get promised some nice horses from if I, if I did get my trainer's licence. Um, and I'm thinking now, realistically, the, the probably the best thing to do would be to would be just to get a, a livery yard or something, pre-training, um, do a lot of buying and selling again, try to get my clients back. But like I said to you before, my, I need to get my reputation back and I need to try and get the racing public to trust me. Even the, you know, some of the, the, the press have, uh, have been fairly harsh on me. So probably that's, that's what I would like to do. But I just want, I just want to, you know, when I, when I got suspended, warned off for the five years, a lot of my very, very close friends were told they couldn't even speak to me. I couldn't do anything to do with a racehorse. Um, and the five years was a long, 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 long time. So I'd like to just get back into racing, an official position. I've been offered a couple of jobs. Um, I'm just keeping my fingers crossed. I mean, I'm hoping this um, interview with you will help us a little bit. Do you think, do, do, do you think you can understand the difference between people liking you and people trusting you? I, I didn't, but you were a very you were a very popular member of the weighing room. Absolutely. There's a lot of people in the industry who clearly are very fond of you, but there is a huge portion of the racing public who completely understandably, because they read this and they read all the literature on you, who would never conceive of giving you any position in racing, however much of a, a good bloke they, they think or know you are. I know it's a very, very difficult position that I'm in. How I'm going to sort it out, I really don't know. Um, but I would just like to be given a chance just to redeem my reputation. What is, what is daily life like now for, for Graham Bradley? Uh, like I said to you before, I still go to the big race meetings and things like that. I play a bit of golf with a few of my friends. Um, but it's difficult. Um, I've applied to be a trainer, I've applied to be a couple of assistants and, and I totally understand why the BHA won't let me do it at the moment. So I'm just working, working, working on trying to regain people's trust and rebuild my reputation. So you're just going back to the it's, time. It's hard. Just going back to the timeline again at the beginning of the interview. We were saying you know, when it, when did this change take place? You know, when did this change within you take place? And you were saying, well, it's it's been happening for you know the last decade, decade, decade and a half or so. But your most recent, so most significant brush with the BHA came when you and you were acquitted. With, with with Brendan Powell of, of, of training under under somebody else's name when you hadn't you hadn't been given a license but in the in the the findings the BHA said that we find that Graham Bradley is consistently someone who is still pushing the boundaries and that's as recent as three or four years ago so do you think do you think since then that you've you've taken a different approach have you recalibrated the way that you you think about it absolutely I've read exactly what they thought what they've said. Um, I didn't agree totally with 100% of it, but I agreed totally that, that it was the wrong thing to do. And you've just got to change and you've, you, you just can't break the rules in racing.
you've got to be an honest, genuine, hard-working person. Um, so that's what I've got to do. Do you think? Do you think you're a natural rule breaker or rule bender? No, definitely not. Um, but I have done. I've just been naive, stupid. Um, you live and learn. You get older. Um, it's not easy. Tell me about the culture of riding at the top level in the weighing room in the, in particularly the 80s and, and then in the 90s. Because I, I will say it again, and I, I mean it. This is a very entertaining book. <laughs> it might have got you into a whole world of trouble, and deservedly so, but it is a very entertaining book. Do you think there was something about the culture of the time, of the moment, that encouraged a lifestyle that could get you into more, more trouble? I'm not giving you a getter. I'm not, exon I'm not exonerating you. I'm just asking you the question about the culture at the time. I don't know. It's, it's, a, it's a lot of years ago. Sport has changed over the last 20 years. Football, cricket, rugby. You know, we used to, when I won the champion early in 1996, Tuesday night, we went to a hotel, we had dinner. Ali McCoy, Andy Gore, and there was about 20 of us, we had a few drinks. You know, jockeys aren't allowed to drink anymore. Um, so, you know, things have changed a lot. They're racing seven days of the week, 365 days of the year. We used to have June and July off every summer and go to Barbados and holidays and things like that. You know, the whole, the whole thing in racing has totally changed. But when you were a jockey, um, you just had to, you, you just needed confidence, you needed sensibility, you needed, you needed to ride good horses. Um, how it's changed over the last 25 years, it's just totally different. Was it a glamorous lifestyle then? Uh, it, was, it was incredible, yeah. I knew lots of people, you get invited here, there and everywhere. It's a wonderful way to earn a living. I'm from a council house family in Yorkshire. My father trained a few winners, but riding for the British jockeys team, riding Gold Cup winners, Champion Hurdle winners, King George winners, Italian Champion Hurdle winners, the, the, the owners that I rode for. Um, going out to France and riding for the Lloyd Webbers. And it's just absolutely incredible. My lifestyle has been brilliant. And I didn't realise I was doing a lot of stupid things wrong. But, I, but now I do, and I just appreciate what I did. Is that because you were so wrapped up in the moment and wrapped up in the adrenaline and the, and the fun of it? It was just, it was just an every, everyday life. It was just fun, riding winners, being interviewed on the television, um, going to parties. That's just, that's just the way it was in sport, yeah. Judgment is, is key, and uh, I think everyone in, in life, unless they're some kind of saint, will, will make bad decisions. But it was essentially your errors of judgment about people's character that, that was your undoing. Do you think you are a, a better judge of character now? Um, and if so, how can, you, how can you convey that properly? I don't really know. I'm sure that I am a better judge of character now, yeah, and I know the rules. In, and I never used to read the rules and regulations and things like that. Um, you know, one of the main problems when I first started off was I went to Cartmel Racecourse and I had 50 quid on a two-to-one mm. on-shot, 125. Well, it was just absolutely stupid. My last ride before I got the two-month suspension, I won the Hennessy Gold Cup on Brigorn. I was conditional champion jockey um, the year before, 1981-82. So to go and have a bet on a public race course, I mean, I, I did see people do it up north years and years and years ago, but for me to do it, being in that position was just mind-bogglingly stupid. I don't know why I did it. But you live and learn. And now, just things have, have changed. Do you think the 
the culture has changed significantly in terms of how jockeys conduct themselves and how they um, fraternise with people that perhaps they oughtn't to be? No, absolutely. The BHA, the Jockey Club, they've done a great job. They've um, made big publicity of, of what I did. Um, and now, I mean, like I said before, jockeys can't go out drinking because they can't go out partying. They've got to ride seven days a week. It's totally, totally changed. Um, the integrity of British horse racing is very important. And I would have said that that in the sport now is, is just absolutely different class. Do you still see yourself as a victim? No, not really. I mean, I totally understand what I've done. But my main problem is trying to apologise and rebuild my reputation. So, in an ideal world, if you came back here in two years' time, what would have happened? If you could envisage the perfect scenario for Graham Bradley, what would it be? I would love to just get an official position in racing. I've been offered an assistant trainer's job by a, a gentleman I've rode a million winners for. He's an absolute super-sized trainer. Lots of winners on the flat group ones, and he's won Gold Cups, Grand Nationals. I would love to help him out. This is David Ellsworth? David Ellsworth, absolutely. I'd love to help him out and go and go racing with him, buy and sell horses and go to the sales. He's bought, he's, I mean, he's just absolutely incredible. Um, and that would help sort of rebuild my reputation, rebuild my career. So something like that would be, would be fabulous. You can still buy and sell horses, can't you? Yes, but at the moment, getting clients is not easy because of my reputation. But as you've, as you've said, and as I've agreed with, you are a popular figure within the bubble of the sport. You do have significant support from quite a lot of those, those players. Surely you could establish that, that bloodstock business again. It seems very difficult at the moment because, you know, at the moment I'm not allowed to have an official position in racing. Um, which, like, like I keep saying, I totally understand. I just need, just need to either get an official position in racing and, and see what happens after that. You bought and, and sold some, some pretty good horses down the years. Um, one of them was Well Chief, who I'm having a look at over your, uh, over, over your shoulder now. Um, for the people who like you and trust you enough to buy horses off you, um, what would you say to them? Well, I, I, when, I, when I stopped riding, I bought Vicious Circle and then I, I, I rode a few winners in Germany and found some really nice horses there. I bought a lot of horses for Robbie Fowler and Steve McManaman when they were footballers. They were, they were, they were nice guys. And Well Chief is the best, best highest rated horse Martin Pipe's ever trained, I think. Seabold won a, won a load of races as well. Um, I bought a lot of good horses, but at, at the moment I've just, I've just not got any clients, so I just want to, want to rebuild it. The thing is, to get the official position in racing, it's all very well to rebuild the confidence and trust of me and Joe Bloggs and anyone, anyone who is watching this program now. Yeah. And you might well succeed in doing that, but it, it's kind of immaterial for you because what you have to do is to convince um, the BHA that you're a, you're a fit and proper person. Absolutely. That's what I'm trying to do. It's, uh, you know, it's because of the, the press and the public. I've just got to... I don't know what I can do to rebuild it apart from just keep apologising and say, I'm sorry, I was just stupid. You know, you can't break the rules in racing. I just want to get back into racing and work hard and get going again. What is it about, about racing that is so addictive for you? Because a lot of people who've had the experiences that you've had, who've been right at the top, right at the pinnacle, enjoyed great days, but then enjoyed some pretty catastrophic lows, some 
most self-induced. What is it about the sport that is so compelling that you want to stay in it? Because it's my life. It's unbelievable. Since I was two years old, I wanted to be a jockey. And the people that, that you meet, the, the places that you go to, um, the Lloyd Webber's 50th birthday party, I went there. Um, Anthony McCoy's retirement doing in Ireland. You know, the whole, anything and everything you do in racing is just absolutely unbelievable. Like I said before, it's the second biggest sport behind football. It's, it's, it's just my life. It's just it's the only thing that I know as well. Um, I couldn't do anything else. I wouldn't want to do anything else. But do you still think that you're... Are you, do you think, still think that you're, you're too seduced by those glamorous aspects of it? I don't think I'm too seduced by it. No, it's just... I just want my really fun life to carry on. Um, earn a living. Just every every day is important. Like I said to you before, when I when I lost my mother, live for today. Mm. Tomorrow is promised mm. no one. I want to just, you know, with my wife and my daughter, all my friends, just want to have fun. And that's the only thing I probably could do is is, is work in racing. Really, I can't do anything else. And your wife, who you've been with for a long, long time now, what? Yeah, thirty years plus. What does she, what does she think? Does she ever say to you, "Come on, just let's go and do something else"? I don't think there's anything else I could do. She's very, very, very supportive. Um, I was very lucky that I married her. Got a beautiful 16-year-old daughter. And it's one of the main reasons that I want to get back into racing. Want to get my reputation back. Want the public to trust me. Um, and rebuild everything. Luck on Sunday. Proudly sponsored by Albasti Equiwell Dubai.